So I'd like to welcome Paul Kennedy to the show. Uh, we're doing a Soccer Works live at the U.S. Soccer AGM here at the Hotel Bar. So we kind of coined this uh, Soccer Works at the Bar. It's a roundtable edition where we have live guests and it's a longer form. And uh, Paul, you've been working, covering American soccer for how many years now? Uh over 40 years. I first, 40 years. I first uh, started writing about Soccer for Soccer America in 1974. 1974. And uh, yeah, then in 1978, I started uh, uh, working for the French magazine France Football as their U.S. correspondent. And in 1985, uh, moved to California from Richmond, where I went to law school and practiced law to become the editor of Soccer America. So it's been 34 years as my uh, day and night job. So you're you, you're normally talking soccer, and we're going to do that on on the on this show. But I want to ask a little bit of a, an aside with your decades of experience in in the sport, covering the sport, um, and you've been with Soccer America for decades as well. Talk about the transition that technology and the influence of technology, where now so much lives and exists in digital versus what it was you know, decades ago. Mm -hmm. T talk about that transition, what life looks like now for Soccer America sure. versus what it was a few decades ago. Um, when I started out at Soccer America, uh, we were a weekly magazine. Clay Burling had started Soccer America in the church that's across my street uh, in Albany, California in 1971. So uh, Soccer America was a weekly publication until uh, 2001. Okay. And I'd say until the internet hit, uh, whatever we put in Soccer America was news to people. And it really covered two forms. Uh, from the 70s into the 80s especially, uh, people were working around the country in soccer uh, in little groups, starting up soccer in communities uh, like in Alabama where you're from, or West Virginia, or Illinois, or California, wherever. And they didn't realize that other people liked them doing the same thing. And Soccer America was that connection uh, in our writing about those activities and the, the work they were doing, the s success stories that teams were have, college programs that were being formed and the like. And uh, so uh, our role in uh, promoting the sport in its early years were, were very special. And you were, you were primarily, what, one of the only ones that we, was There, there, there were other people who, who did it, but what you have to remember is that soccer was not covered in uh, newspapers at all. Right. You know, if you, know, if you, you know, had a local, local uh, youth club or, or high school, it was very, very far down the totem pole in terms of local coverage. Um, and there are other publications, probably in our lifetime, there have been at least 20, 25, and, you know, they've all folded. And that's a credit to our work, our owners' commitment through the years, and uh, you know now our experience to provide some perspective that uh, you know is valuable today as the game still uh, grows a lot, but still struggles for uh, to break through and to solve many of the serious issues that it faces today. Um, so the other hand was is that uh, we would we would go to press every Tuesday night, and our readers would get what we did that Tuesday night a week or two later. And uh, all the information arriving two weeks later was still news to people. So if we, we, we would have Reuters service in the back of the magazine, we would have all the international scores, you know, from every league in the world. 
And so uh, if, you got, if you were, say, a Turkish professor in Iowa and you got South America two weeks later, those scores were still new to him. Right. So that there was a value in that. All that went away when the Internet came. So how did that how did that change the process of Soccer America the it, day, it, day, it, day, it, day it, it, process? It, you know, we were one of the first people to have a website in 1995. We started Soccer America. We had a uh, uh, Soccer America graffiti, which people occasionally refer to today, was sort of the precursor of BigSoccer.com or today Twitter. Um, but in many ways, as a just like regular. Uh, print publications or newspapers, it was very much a struggle to deal with how much you how much you commit to the new forum, how much you continue to do work um, with what you were you know, always doing. And for Soccer America, uh, by the mid-90s, uh, we were quite uh, successful. I mean, when I started out, you know, we weren't in 1985, but because, partly because of the World Cup, but because of our work and because of the growing sport, uh, you know, uh, we made good money. We all made good salaries, and we, we had a staff of I had a staff of eight full-time editors, plus you know correspondents around the country, and little by little that all went away. And so I could say that uh, today, meaning right, literally 2019, after, 2019, last night, this afternoon, and this evening, you know, we will we will do uh, with two full-time editors. Uh, 11 Soccer Americas in a week that, you know, 20 years ago, we would do once a week with eight editors. Wow. And that's, you know, that's uh, how much has changed, meaning for me right now, uh, we, you know, Soccer America now only does uh, uh, electronic publications and, and a website, right. which is now a paywall. And, uh, you know, we charge uh, our members... $49 a year to receive every day and twice a week, twice a day uh, during the weekday, uh, an e-letter where, where I present the news of the day. And also we have uh, other people writing columns and stuff like that where, uh, and we've only started that in the last year and a half, but it's, it's allowed us to get back to uh, uh, a break-even status in our business and continue. And it allows me to continue doing something that I've done you know, now for 35 years and love to do. So uh, I, I've seen uh, a little um, pushback recently on social media about paywalls in, in writing and so and so forth. Um, has that, obviously it's helped you financially, which is the purpose of the paywall. Has it, has it hurt the viewership or the readership? I mean, are I you mean, seeing I mean, less I mean, engagement oh, or? Obviously less, you know, I mean, I mean literally, we, you know, we've gone, are the number of people who, who receive soccer each day has gone from, you know, hundreds of thousands to thousands. But the point is, is that uh, those thousands of people are, are paying $49 a year to, you know, to do it, to make... And the other point being that digital advertising, uh, uh, which was supposed to save everyone out there, has not. So yeah, it, hasn't, it hasn't worked out like a lot of people thought. Exactly. And I would say a couple things. I would say... Uh, you know, now you, you know all the stuff in the last month, especially of the BuzzFeeds of the world and Vice. You know, uh, a lot of the, the 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 staff cutbacks are a reflection of that. And with with our business, it's been it's very difficult because uh, there is not that great a universe of companies advertising in soccer. It's not that big, 
and frankly, uh, MLS through some controls them all. And and you know, in, in you know, with what they do, they you know, they do a good job of making sure that their sponsors uh, are covered in terms of their uh, reach through the properties they have, which is their teams and their teams' websites and the, the television deals they have. Right. But that leaves nothing for you know for anybody else. Right. So. As you look forward, before we kind of get off of this, you know, Soccer America, soccer America in, in 2019 and, and, and a look back over the decades, as you kind of look forward, taking into account this recent period from 2001 where you've gone digital and then now all in digital, um, what, do you, what do you kind of forecast or foresee? What, what, are you, what are you guys thinking as you dream about the future what does the future of Soccer America look like going forward? Is it more of the same of what you're doing right now in 2019, or are you guys kicking around any other um, know, ideas? I would say, frankly, the hardest part is that we have so much to do on a daily basis that it's hard to really think long term. Um, we are fortunate that we are part of a uh, media company called Media Post, whose uh, uh, bread and butter is digital is covering uh, advertising, digital advertising, uh, email, search, and all things like that. But but for right now, most of their publications remain free. But they are that you know they have things like conferences and you know strong uh, advertising uh, to sustain themselves. You know we're not like that. And but I would say that we've been fortunate that. It's now only a year and a half since we started our paywall. Paywall, even in that time period, has become that much more acceptable. And even in the soccer sphere, you have something like the Athletic that's come along that does a great job, you know, within the soccer world. Right. Um, you know, has a bigger staff than we are, but it's much more acceptable to do it. So little by little, you know, we're getting more people to uh, subscribe. And again, you know, we're not for someone who is going to be on social media every day because through social media you can pretty much get all the the news you want we're more for people who are tend to be older more professional I mean, the example i would use is that say uh, i bet you just about every mls club president subscribes to soccer america but most people below don't need to and that club president doesn't read it because a lot of our mls news is exclusive it's not but we we cover the breadth of soccer so that things they need to know on a daily basis about the sport are what they will find in Soccer America. So you've been to um, so many U.S. Soccer AGMs, and um, I, you know, last year was kind of a circus, right, with, with eight candidates and, um, you know, a presidential election. This was the first contested election for president in quite some time. Uh, Sunil Gulati stepping down after 12 years. Um, and we have Carlos Cordero get elected, and we come into this year's AGM. We have an uncontested election. Um, I actually uh, put out a, a, a podcast earlier today talking about it as a coronation, um, and, and the reason why I use that term because it was, and I explained this in, in that podcast, about it being an uncontested election, um, and, and so the excitement, the energy, the entertainment, the inner, you know, all of those things uh, is obviously on a totally different scale than last year. Um, what have you kind of gleaned from this AGM? Has there been anything or 
certain things that have really kind of stuck out to you, uh, good, bad, indifferent, that, that you think was like, oh, I wasn't expecting to hear that, or that's some interesting news, or anything like that? Uh, anything, any news to share? Um, I would say that on the whole, uh, the reality is, is that the Federation is dealing with the same issues they've dealt with for a long time. It's just bigger, they have more money to spend. Um, and they, uh, you know, I mean, Carlos Cordero wants to, you know, grow the Federation to fund programs, but it's going to be very hard to do. I mean, it requires so much money. Um, you know, the sport has a lot of opportunities, but, uh, and I think the one thing that, that strikes me is, uh, and again, in the context of Soccer America, we will write about all different kinds of issues. Like this week, one of the things that came up was the Federation right now uh, is struggling to hire national youth team coaches. National youth teams have been doing very well. Right now, uh, I would say in, in my lifetime, for the first time, we're really seeing players coming through at a significantly good rate um, for a, any number of reasons, and the Federation can't hire coaches. Right. There's any number of political issues, but the point being that I've heard not one, not one word of discussion about that here, either in terms of the conversations around the bar or on the floor today of the AGM. Part of it is it, it reflects the fact that the Federation has to deal with so many areas. I mean, a lot of things that came up today were, you know, uh, in, in the discussions we had with Carlos Cordero after uh, the AGM for women's issues. Again, I mean, right. you know, they're there, but it goes to the nature of, this, of, of soccer in this country, which is so different from traditional American sports, and in many ways from soccer in a lot of other countries where it's very singular focused of a league or in America in sports, you know, you have a pro league and college and high school. Um, you know, and it was always for us, even at Soccer America, a great struggle because you can have indoor soccer, you have outdoor soccer, men's, women's, and uh, pro, college. And these are all the things that the Federation is trying to deal with and trying to uh, tackle at the same time. And for all the people here who are uh, attending the AGM, they're all going to come with looking at soccer from a different point of view, let alone anyone who listens to your show or uh, you know, is involved in uh, a team you or you or your uh, kids might play on, they're going to look at soccer in a different way where American sports are generally not like that. Right, right. I, I, I definitely um, saw a, I guess malaise is a word that I would use. I, I haven't seen a lot of um, outrage. Last year there was a lot of emotion and I, yeah. you know, with the election. I haven't seen a lot of emotion. I have seen the the level of frustration to me actually seems a little bit higher this year than last year, but um, it hasn't manifested in, in like emotional reactions, just more in like conversations. And you know, I was one of the things I was looking for from this weekend was to to try to get a glimpse into. You know what is the big idea? You know, to to use the the U.S. soccer vision statement of making soccer the preeminent sport in America. To me, is is is, is so general. But like, what does that mean? Um, we were actually talking on on another roundtable um, this weekend about the idea. Of, in my view, 
that U.S. soccer's goal should be to become the greatest soccer country on earth. And it was funny. I bring, I bring, I'm telling this to bring this to this point. One of the videos that U.S. soccer prepared, which, by the way, was a great video, was the JFK speech of putting a man on the moon. And the, the show that we, we did um, last night here at the bar, I actually, ironically, was talking about JFK putting a man on the moon and how that should be the way that we approach soccer in America, that the Federation should dream big, you know, hairy, audacious goal-type dreams, things that, that almost scare you. Right, and so I thought it was interesting that they they used that speech today, um, and 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 we're trying to at least allude to this idea of something bigger, building something better, but I I, I haven't seen that matched up, and maybe maybe you've had a different experience, but I haven't seen that actually match up with what I would consider to be substantive, you know, strategic plans, you know, detailed. Um, that, that clubs or state associations or whatever can really take and go, okay, yeah, we're going to put a man on the moon, but here's how we're going to do it, right? Have you, what's your... Um, I think a couple of issues is, is we need to see if when the man's on the moon, what's that form going to take? Right. You know, does that mean, you know, when, when you know, win a World Cup, say, which, which I think is, you know, probably the, the, the easiest example of that Although that goes away from the discussion of women's issues or you know uh, pro league issues, but that is, that that's really you know the best example. And my point would be is that uh, there's so many factors in, in into creating a world the best World Cup team that the federation's never going to uh, have a role in. Um, and I think it's it's more nurturing what is out there. And, and as I said, I mean, I, I feel that, you know, we're for the first time in a situation we have kids growing up who have the talent and have had the developmental experience at a young age to understand what it's like to uh, be a great player. You know, and it's but it's going to still take time in that, you know, for all the stuff that we talk about every day about, you know, a player in Europe or today, you know, a Tyler Adams have another great game in the Bundesliga, that's just one player. Right. Where we need, you know, you know, 20, 30 of them to be like an Argentina or Brazil or France who, from that consistency of numbers of good players, then has a team that, you know, has 11 players playing great for one month every four years to win a World Cup. Right. You know, I, I said this around the, the World Cup time. Um, I was a, a big admirer of the talent pool that France had assembled. Um, and, you know, for every player that was on their roster, there was players that didn't even make the World Cup roster that are, you know, phenomenal players. And <clears throat> several, several on social media kind of pushed back when I said this, but I, I said that, you know, if you want to get a, a picture of where U.S. soccer really is on on that scale uh, when we're judging World Cups and talent. Christian Pulisic is not only not in the starting 11 of the French national team, I would make the argument he's not on the team. Oh, yeah, he would not be on the team. Right. I mean, he would, he would be probably in their under-21 team. Right. And so when you look at 
when you look at that, everyone has kind of had this consensus about Christian for the last, you know, 18 months, two years. Like, he's our best player. So France has an entire starting 11 plus the rest of their World Cup roster, and I would argue possibly even additional players that didn't make the roster that are at the level of Christian Pulisic or better, and he's our best. And the drop-off from Christian, you know, in the last 18 months to the rest of the national team players um, has, has, is, has been pretty stark, right? Yeah. And we, we've seen a little bit of, I, I think, growth and movement with some of these younger players leaving for the Bundesliga, like Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Josh Sargent. Um, and I, I think those things are good. Timothy Weah, who's now on loan at, at Celtic. You know, when we look at the player pool for, for the U.S. on the men's side of the ledger, the, the pool is just not deep, right? I mean, if, if every one of those players works out, then we're going to have a pretty, you know, decent competitive team. But if, if one or two of those guys don't work out, we're, we're still kind of in this same mediocre level of where we've been for the last 12, 16 years. Exactly, meaning uh, player development is always a numbers game where you're going to have, let's say, 10 players as pro quote prospects. The reality is that no more than two or three of them are ever going to make it. Right. And it's just the way things are. You know, guy gets hurt, guy might, uh, you know, emotionally not be, you know, strong enough to progress, might get a girlfriend, might have bad luck with a coach, but it's just going to happen. Right. And, you know, we don't have, you know, we aren't like France where you have, 100 players, and so that you have 20 great players. And you look at France with a World Cup team where not only did they have, the reality was they had, you know, Didier Deschamps had 30 players to pick from. Right. And his job was to decide which were the 23, not the best 23, but the 23 that were going to work together because they're going to be together for two months away from their families that uh, could, could handle that and work together to win a World Cup. You know, and, and you know, we're just not even close to that. Right. You know, we're, we're one-tenth there. So in your coverage of American soccer, um, and obviously that's heavily involved with U.S. soccer, and over the last two decades plus, Major League Soccer as well, what, what are your thoughts about where we are now compared to, say, where we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I mean, a lot of people talk about growth and progress. Where would you evaluate that on the scale of where we are versus our potential of where we could be? What are your thoughts on that? We're not that farther along than we were, you know, 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, you know, we took a step back, you know, with basically a lost generation where for five or ten years we weren't producing players. And I think part of it goes to the fact that... Uh, there just wasn't the environment for kids to thrive, and there are any number of reasons for it. Uh, you know, it's you know, soccer, you know, in some ways developed too fast at the youth level, became too organized, uh, too much money was thrown at it, but it, it didn't address any of the issues, which were, you know, players, you know, had to at a young age uh, be given the, you know, just good environments to work with and have good coaching and good players around them. And, uh, you know, obviously issues of access have made very difficult. Uh, issues of pay-to-play are a problem. And, uh, unfortunately, there are more 
systemic issues of American culture and American society and American sports than just a soccer problem. So it's going to be very hard to change. Um, but if you look at the players that, say, Bruce Arena had to work with at the 2002 World Cup till now, I think, as he said uh, about a year ago, after he, after the U.S. was eliminated and he lost his job, that if he had to pick a team between 2002 and 2018, maybe two of the 2018 players would be on his team. Right. You know, and uh, so it's just, it's just not there yet. So as we as we look at at U.S. soccer in that progress or that stalling of progress over the the last you know 10 15 years what what remedies do you do you think would uh, help get us going in the, in the right path or help get us moving faster towards the goal of making soccer the preeminent sport like um i th- i think it's starting to take place and that uh it just needs time for players to have grown up in good environments and been given the opportunity. Um, to me, the most encouraging thing now is that you see players who are coming along who a year or two ago you would never have heard of. Right. You know, you look at, you know, I can think of examples of, you know, uh, uh, Chris Richards, who's from Alabama. Right. You know, you would never have heard of a player from Alabama making it in soccer. I mean, there were, there were obviously a few players. Absolutely. But, but, but a player who, you know, within a year being in, you know, I mean, he was only, obviously, he was in with the Texans for a while. He was only at FC Dallas for a very short time before Byron came in. But you would never would have seen that five years ago. No. And so part of it is it, it's a natural process. And it, part of it is just having enough uh, uh, competent people with some experience working with kids to know um, to push them in the right direction. So, so in that way, I'm more, I'm more confident that we will uh, produce really good players, players who we want to watch every week, players who we can be proud of and have a national regard proud of. Um, obviously, still to say that soccer is going to be the preeminent sport or a preeminent sport is still very hard very hard to do for reasons that I would say just due to the fact that uh, one of the downsides with age is I, I can look at all the progress we made and be grateful for that. Right. You know, right. To, to understand how, you know, so many of the issues related to the fact that soccer came along so late in the process of American sports life that, uh, you know, uh, within communities, all the best fields, all the best. Uh, um, programs, you know, funding was taken by other sports. Right. So let, let's stay on Chris Richards for a second because, you know, for anyone listening, I, I am from Alabama. I try my best not to sound like I'm from Alabama, but um, there you can never totally get rid of that. And um, But looking at Chris Richards' story, one of the things that, that I was looking at um, this weekend at the AGM with some of the updates on the bylaws and policies was to kind of go back and study, you know, some of the issues that were were, were being proposed, changes to be being proposed. And I, I looked at bylaw 103, which was not a, a bylaw that was being, you know, amended, but it is, it was one of the first bylaws and it's, it's in that bylaw where U.S. soccer 
in, in its governing document talks about how they are um, the governing entity for you know American soccer. They are bound by uh, and get their power from FIFA. And then in another section, they talk about how they get some power from the U.S. Olympic Committee. But in that clause, that paragraph, uh, that first section, it, it says that they are bound by all of FIFA's rules, processes, procedures, policies, bylaws, etc. Um, paraphrasing, maybe not exact wordage, but it's clear that's what, what it's laying out. Except where U.S. law intervenes. This is my summary of that section. So, have you ever heard a law that has been cited in all of your coverage of over decades of coverage? Have you ever heard a law or any laws that prohibits U.S. soccer, uh, the federation, from implementing all FIFA rules and regulations, meaning sporting merit, i.e. promotion and relegation, or solidarity payments and training compensation, um, you know, the, the documentation of player IDs and player passports, etc. Have, have you seen any kind of U.S. law or heard anyone cite a U.S. law that says that these FIFA rules can't be implemented? I wouldn't say the issue. I mean, that's that's where that's where all the you know any number all the lawsuits for each of the specific cases you refer to, which is really the solidarity payments and uh, you know uh, sporting merit um, are at right now. Right. And they're and and they're not saying that there's no law uh, 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 requiring it. They're just saying that you know that that you know that they're they're just trying to, I think. Uh, for, you know, forestall it. Right. Because uh-huh. as I look at it, I, I, I've asked a number of people over this weekend, where's the law? Like, it, you know, for even one of the issues, right? Maybe not all of them, but like, okay, maybe there's a law that says you can't do solidarity payments, or there's a law that says you can't do promotion and relegation. You know, any of those things is... Is there a law? And and over and over again, yeah. everyone's like, I don't know of any U.S. Yeah, and, law that and, and would prohibit different cases. And, and again, I, I, no. I found the argument that the Federation and MLS use related to solidarity payments uh, confusing. Obviously, now they're they're now they're, that Don and, and, and Don Garber in December you know, <laughs> was change, basically saying, changing my tune. Hey, now we want to yeah. get no, solidarity I mean, payments. I mean, that's that's what I asked him. At you know, it was. I asked him at the MLS Cup that question. Um, with promotion and relegation, it's more a matter of... It isn't a matter of it, you can't do it. It's a matter of requiring it. And that's where I think, you know, you it would be... The issue would be that's where there's no de- definitive answer, but there would be a, a court challenge. Sure. And, and I think there, you know, just to go down... We're going to go down that rabbit trail for just a second. We're going to peer around the, the a corner into the abyss where a lot of a lo- there's a lot of pro and, and against angst and social media about this issue but looking at FIFA's you know principles of sporting merit I think there's a few ways that c- 
could be implemented by the Federation. You know, I don't think there is a, a black and white, one or the other type of scenario as an only option. You know, there's only going to be an option A. I think there's a few ways it could play out. I think, I think you could basically have Major League Soccer operate in its own airspace and not be required to be connected to a pyramid as a private business. Um, and I think U.S. law would probably give them that freedom to do so. Um, and, and yet, parallel to them, there would be, you know, a U.S. soccer-sanctioned pyramid. pyramid. Um, so although, although it always, at least right now, its chances of success with a mature, relatively mature business with millions and millions of dollars behind it would make that very hard to pull off. Uh, well, I would say, I would say, because my point would be is I, I, you know, my take on it is, is that every, you know, any league should have an opportunity to start. Right. And I've, uh, you know, my position say on the professional league standards is I felt there shouldn't be any. At the same time, I could see why the Federation would want to have them. And as a result, if there was ever a court fight over it, which there is now, up until now, they've been able to uh, win on the reasonableness of them. You know, the bottom line in the NESL suit was, there any, was there any, you know, quote, conspiracy, you know, to, you know, ensure that, you know, the NESL, uh, you know, would have, you know, roadblocks put in its path. Right. When, when I look at the professional league standards, I am in, I'm in favor of the PLS, not as they're written, but the idea of having a PLS, a professional league standards, um, you know, set of rules, because it, it does create uh, the minimum level of expectation for quality surrounding the sport at certain levels. If you look overseas to the biggest leagues in the world that all reside in Europe, they all have some level of a professional league standards set up. Yeah, in countries the, like France and Germany, they're very complex. Right. The difference in those standards and the American standards or the U.S. soccer standards is where I have a big issue because the standards as written are written to protect closed league entities from competition. They're not written on a basis of individual club stability, mobility, or operations. So when you look at the professional league standards, say in, in England, a league that many Americans are familiar with, the Premier League, and then you've got the Championship, League One, League Two, so on and so forth. When you look at those standards at those different levels, they are all preparing clubs for life at the next level. There are some, you know, windows of time. Once you've earned your way on the field into those leagues, you've got some time. So one of the great examples of this in recent uh, memory is Burnmouth. When they first were promoted to the Premier League, their stadium was 500 seats short of the minimum standard. But they had to the end of their second year in the Premier League to have at least 12,500 seats. So instead of putting in the 500 seats in year one, they weighed it to see if they would stay up. 
and instead reinvested what money they would have put into that capital campaign into their roster. And they stayed up, and then they finished the 500 seats, and they remain in the Premier League. And one of the other things that went into that was the the manager was was for this plan for, for that reason, but he was also for this plan for another reason, because part of the professional league standards of the Premier League is a minimum percentage of tickets allotted to the away fans. And with their new stadium reconfiguration, it was going to move some of the away fans section behind one of their goals. And he wanted every home field advantage he could get. So they were able to keep for that first year all the away fans (laughs) tucked in a corner, right, away from everything else until they were able to stay up. And then after that year, they had stability, they had that extra revenue, they had the players, the base, to, to the foundation to stay up. Then they added the seats and they remain in the Premier League. When we look at our standards, they're based on non-soccer ideas, non-soccer reasons. You, they're based on ownership net worth. There are a lot of wealthy people around the world, even in open league systems in, in Europe, who do a really bad job of running their club. It, having a lot of money doesn't equal knowing how to run a soccer club. And so instead of making the financial requirements of and standards on clubs and club viability, you know, prove that you can pay your bills. And, and if that means it's the ownership subsidizing and covering that, fine. If it means that you've proven that you've figured out how to get enough sponsorships and season ticket sales or doing something, you know, creative like what Chattanooga's recently done and opening up their, their uh, ownership to the public for the public to buy shares, whatever the case may be, like, fine, but prove that you can pay your bills and operate a first or second or third division team based on your financial merit of your club rather than the owner's net worth. That's one thing. Another thing I look at is what, what is the, the reason for the metro market size minimum because I look at a place like West Virginia for example I think if, if there was a club that was in the first division in in Charleston West Virginia that they would be selling out every match it would be the show in town it would be the only pro sports team in the country and if they were the Burnmouth of the you know east mm-hmm. and and had won their way into a first division setup I mean you know What's to say they shouldn't be there because they earned their way in like they, you know, if we had that system like the rest of the world. So when I look at these standards, I look at non-soccer reasons, you know, in these standards that we have in the U.S. compared to soccer-specific reasons in the Bundesliga or in the Premier League where it's all about club viability, club mobility, growing the commercial aspect of the league, but all of it's tied back into that football operations not so much into these arbitrary time zones, metro market size, ownership net worth requirements. I think if those things were tweaked to be more reflective, and, and quite honestly, I'm, the the professional league standards that you see in the Bundesliga, in Germany and other leagues, I mean, in, in England and other leagues in Europe, those standards are actually more restrictive, or, or there are more of them, I guess is a better better way to look at it. There are a bigger quantity of rules than we have in U.S. soccer. 
but at the same time, they're providing more opportunity and more viability and more mobility for clubs to have access to a higher league if you're fourth division up to third, third to two, et cetera, compared to what we have in the U.S., where we only have three or four rules, but they're, they're so not based on soccer that it has a detrimental effect on soccer, if that makes any yeah. sense. No, I agree with, with a lot of what you're saying, and I think a couple things I would say is to the, the second point about in Europe there being a lot of rules. There are a lot of rules because... There are a lot of soccer things, like you say, that need to be covered and taken care of in the organization and ongoing management and stability of a club. Right. Um, on the other part, I think it goes to the long-term history of professional American soccer where owners came in and were throwing money at the sport when there was none of the... The second part, there was none of the... The uh, none of the infrastructure right. that a traditional club in in Europe would have had in full or in part, you know, partly because they've had a hundred more years to work at it, and in alliances, you know, there were communities that you know worked with the development of the sport, you know, that, that we just lacked, right. and so um, a lot of the reaction in the rules, I think, are. Our, our response to ignorant owners throwing money at the sport and uh, failing. Right. And um, so that as a result, you know, um, you know, they're trying to, you know, prop up the sport in ways that uh, long term shouldn't be there. You know, I mean, I think, you know, uh, short term, they're, you know, it's very understandable why they're there. But little by little, as the sport gets bigger and more structured and more organized, the reasons why they're there are going to be less so. So the question is going to become, at what point does uh, the federation tweak its, its, its rules? Right. You know, and, and that's, we, we don't know, and, uh, and it's... Uh, it then becomes a much more politicized because uh, you have at one side MLS been able to develop and grow, and the question is how much support does it need? You know, you know when do they get to be weaned off of of the advantage that they've had that I would argue that they needed to have for it to, to ever get to where it was. Right. You know? So as we're kind of winding up this this edition of, of Soccer Works Live at the Bar here at the U.S. Soccer AGM, here with Paul Kennedy of Soccer America. I, I want to end with a, a couple questions, kind of rapid-fire questions, get, get your thoughts on a couple issues. One is, where do you see the legal challenges going? Do you see the solidarity payments, uh, training compensation cases, uh, do you see those uh, resulting in a change in policy with U.S. soccer and, and how those are treated, and especially now that Major League Soccer has publicly started posturing for wanting some type of system. So I'll start there. Do you, do you see any positive movement or conclusion with those lawsuits? Well, the we, we, we wait to need to see the conclusion of the, of the current lawsuits, say, in the case of 
DeAndre Yedlin and Tottenham because I think uh, there's a chance that Crossfire is going to lose just in the facts of the case of we don't know how well they uh, do their bookkeeping, which is a, a problem all around the world. Sure. I mean that, that you know, uh, in most confederations, the amount of money spent in, in solidary payments is very small. Right. But, but, and so the predicament is uh, I could see the federation uh, agreeing to, to solidary payments, um, uh, but as a defensive measure, you know, to protect, protect its investment in players. Right. Um, you know, I think it will, but I think it's something that will come around, although the question is, will the rest of the world continue to, to abide by, you know, FIFA's requirements? So when we look at another legal issue, we have the Court of Arbitration in Sport case uh, brought by Ricardo Silva, Miami FC, and um, partnered in that, that suit with uh, Stockade FC, Dennis Crowley. Um, have you heard or seen anything on I've, that? I've seen, I've seen nothing about it. You know, I would, you know, I, I don't know enough about, you know, uh, how they would view, uh, you know, the ripeness of the case. Again, just like the solidarity payments case, the predicament a little bit is what are the actual facts of the current case versus what is the, the, the principle of laws and how they should be upheld or not upheld. Um, so that's a little bit there. At the same time, I would say the issue is going to be is what was the intent of FIFA in its uh, writing of, the, of its, its uh, you know, sporting you know, merit issues uh, when it did so about a decade ago. I mean, I think, I, th I think they did not intend to require promotion relegation, uh, but the law or the rules that they wrote made it much more so uh, uh, in the actual you know, written document. Right. So another legal case, the one that's probably the big enchilada of them all and going to definitely cost the most, <laughs> is the, the challenge of... NASL versus the Federation and antitrust is, is, is one of the phrases that's been associated with that case which the government takes very very serious what what are you what are your you look in the crystal ball with that what are, what are you thinking about I mean, I mean, I mean, coming down you know I mean I take a couple of things without knowing the facts of the what, sure. you know, what, what, what what's your speculation here I could see an outcome where the NASL wins but they receive no damages, and uh, uh, it would may require the federation to eliminate its uh, divisional structure, which I, you know, would feel uh, would question why it's there in the first place. You know, you can go either way. Right. Like I said meaning that I agree with the way the the court ruled up till now that the you know the the professional league standards were reasonable for the reasons the Federation uh, put forth, but they don't need to be there. Right. Um, but I could say, you know, and again, I can look in terms of my history, where I was back involved when the NESL sued the NFL over the cross-ownership ban. And uh, the NESL won. But by the time they won, they were out of business. And then uh, when the damages finally were, were awarded, they got $1 trebled. So and they, they and, and the last thing I'd say is what I found interesting was in terms of this AGM is going through the uh, federation budget. 
and the actual legal outside legal expenses they're paying isn't that much more than they were pre-NSL lawsuit. Right. You know, so you know, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, you know what they're charged for. Although, you know, it, what what I have to look is go back through ten years ago, meaning that starting 2015, because of the uh, FIFA scandals um, and uh, its organization of the uh, Copa Centenario, where the DOJ, you know, is actively involved in overseeing it. That in and of itself is going to mean you can be spending a ton of money on lawyers. Right. So as we wind up this episode and we have been here at the AGM, what is, what is your parting thought for the listeners? What, what, are you, what are you thinking leaving here at this U.S. Soccer AGM? What's, what's your kind of, it may be more than one thought, but what, uh, what, what are you yeah. thinking? So many people are, are people I saw here 30 years ago. So from that point of view, it hasn't changed that much. Obviously, the sport has grown tremendously. But the, to me, the most important thing is, and I see that talking to individuals here, is uh, what, what each of you in the audience or each of us do on a daily basis where you live to grow the sport in your community. And, that, and that's something that, uh, to me, more and more every day I feel is the most important thing because it still hasn't been done. And until you know, soccer has the you know the best facilities, the best access to fields, the best parents involved, and then the best uh, coaches involved. Uh, you know, we'll never have the best opportunities for our kids, which is something that you know we all strive for. Right. Well, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for stopping by Soccer Works Live at the bar at the U.S. Soccer AGM. Well, I enjoyed it. And before you go, tell everybody how they can follow you on social media, your website, I want sure. all that. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at PKEdit. Um, uh, and also SoccerAmerica.com. You can go there to uh, uh, read what we do. Uh, some of our stuff is free. Some of it, you can get a subscription for it, but you also can you give us your email. You don't need a credit card like some sites do, but just an email will... Uh, you can read three articles a month and plus get some of our newsletters to see what we do every day. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the show and everybody out there listening, follow Soccer America and all of their work. Obviously, when you've got a multi-decade track record, you know that it is a, a publication worth uh, following, reading, staying in touch with, and, uh, and, and seeing what they are doing. Thanks for all your work in, the, in American soccer. Well, you're welcome.